Uh, let me ask a question to you. When you think about Christmas, what do you think about first? You think about Christmas, it's impossible not to think about Christmas right now. Uh, what actually comes to mind first? I'm guessing for some of us, when we think about Christmas, the first thoughts that come into our mind is something to do with the Christmas story. Maybe it's baby Jesus in the manger, or Mary, or Joseph, or the shepherds, or maybe it's the wise men, maybe some character within the Christmas story. I'm guessing for some, when we think about uh, Christmas, the very first thing that comes to mind is things like gifts and shopping and Christmas parties, and we think about decorations, and we think about family and family gatherings, and we think about snow, and we think about Santa, and we think about Will Ferrell, because we'll get to watch Elf on rerun in December. So it's safe to say there's probably maybe a few things that come to mind when we think about Christmas, but so I've been thinking about Christmas over the past uh, month or two, an observation that I would at least make is that celebrating Christmas has become, for many, more of a cultural holiday than a spiritual holiday, meaning if Jesus were to go missing from Christmas, um, how much would actually change? Now, I want you to think about this for yourself. If Jesus were to go missing from your Christmas, how much would actually change for you personally in the month of December? If Jesus were to go missing, I mean, wouldn't you still put up a Christmas tree and decorate it in your house? Wouldn't you still give gifts and maybe receive gifts in the month of December? Or wouldn't you still take time off from work uh, towards the end of December or take time off from school? If Jesus were to somehow go missing from your Christmas, wouldn't you still attend the same parties and enjoy the same Christmas-themed food? And if you've got kids, uh, young kids specifically, wouldn't you still take them to go visit Santa in the mall? Now, I'm not suggesting that doing any of these things are wrong or bad by any means, but I guess my question that I'm asking is, is this, if not much would actually change in what we would do around Christmas if Jesus were to go missing, well, my question is this, what difference does Jesus make at Christmas time? Like, what difference does Jesus really make for us at Christmas time? Because if we don't have a, a thoughtful or a meaningful response answer to that question, then I think we will fall prey to actually celebrating another cultural Christmas rather than a spiritual Christmas, or just another way to say that. If we don't have a thoughtful answer or response to that question of what difference does Jesus make at Christmas time, we'll actually end up missing Christmas. Now, this morning, I just want to look at one verse together. And it's not a verse that you would actually find in the Christmas narrative. It's not a verse that you would find in the Christmas story, but it is one verse that helps us understand, I think, with great clarity, the difference that Jesus actually makes at Christmas time. Uh, I'm going to read just one verse, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's chapter 8, verse 9. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in the city of Corinth. He says this, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make you rich. Let me read this one more time. 
you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make you rich. This one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says a lot about Jesus, and it also says a lot about us, about who He is and about who we are. And before we look at this one verse and what we learn about Jesus and what we learn about ourselves, I want us to understand the verse actually in the context of Paul's encouragement and his challenge to this community in Corinth. Now, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this specific verse, this specific letter, is giving the church, meaning the people of God, a very specific challenge in where he wants to see this community not just grow, but he wants to see them excel in this one area. If you just back up two verses, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, in your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, in your love for us, I want you also to excel in this gracious act of giving. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Notice that he first encourages them and says, you're excelling in so many different ways. You're excelling in your faith. You're excelling in your knowledge. You're excelling in your passion for God. And you're excelling in your love, your growing love for us. But there is one specific way in which I really want to see you as the people of God begin to excel, and it's in the gracious act of giving. Now, just to be clear, this is not Paul trying to make a money pitch to the people in Corinth. This is not him trying to, in a backhanded way, get money from people. Rather, Paul is wanting people to see the connection between our understanding of the gospel and our giving. What is that connection? Well, as I've been thinking about that connection between gospel, understanding, or awareness, and giving, the note I wrote in my journal was this, giving reflects best our understanding of the gospel. Giving reflects best our understanding of the gospel. Maybe another way to say the same thing is giving is a barometer of how we understand all that God has actually given to us. Paul did not want the church in Corinth to be okay as it related to giving. He wanted the church to actually excel in the gracious act of giving. Now, I don't know if you've seen these commercials before. I love them. Uh, they're the current AT&T commercials about just being okay. And one of my favorite commercials is when the guy walks into a mechanic shop, and he looks at the mechanic, whose name is Phil, and he says, Phil, are you guys good with brakes? And Phil says, yeah, we're okay. And the guy says, just okay. And Phil responds by saying, we've got a saying around here. If the brakes don't stop, something else will. And then you hear the narrator's voice come on over there and says, just okay is not okay. I want you to think for 2019. As you look back towards your giving in 2019, whether it's your giving to support the local church 
or it's your giving towards supporting communities that are doing anything and everything that they can to help people meet Jesus, would you be able to say, as you look back on giving in 2019, say, I excelled in my giving? Or would you actually say something like, eh, it was just okay. My giving was just okay. If the people that like study these things for a living are anywhere close to accurate, I would have to say that the church in America is somehow just doing okay. Because according to the research, uh, the average American uh, in our culture, in our country, gives two and a half percent of their salary away, all in, whether that's to the church, whether that's just to nonprofit charity organizations, just two and a half percent. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if two and a half percent could fall anywhere close to the idea of Christians are excelling in the gracious act of giving. Now, I want to be clear. You could be a person that would say, two and a half percent, I give 90 percent of my salary away, and have the idea that if we give 50 or 70 or 80 or 90 percent of our income away, whether it's to church or just local charities, that that would somehow be maybe impressive to you or impressive to others or somehow even impressive to God. Like, if you are giving that much away, you might be able to impress yourself and maybe even impress other people around you, but that would utterly not be impressive to God because God is not concerned about do you give 90% away. He's concerned about the heart connection that you have with your understanding of the gospel and what God's given you and your generosity connected to that. So, if God is first and foremost concerned with the heart of the giver, meaning you and I, the question I would ask then is, well, what does it look like to excel in giving? Like, if the message that Paul is giving to these people is, I want you to not just excel in faith and passion and love and knowledge, but I want you to excel in the gracious act of giving, then what does excelling actually look like? Now, this is where we might look for that verse and be like, well, give me a number. Is it 5%? Is it 7%? Is it 10%? Is it 30%? Heck, is it 90%? Give me the number so I can have a target that I'm shooting for, and I'll begin aiming for that. And what I love about what Paul does not do is he does not give a number. He doesn't give a percent that reflects someone who is excelling. And so, I'm not going to give you a percent because he doesn't. What Paul does do in order to help them, help us understand what it would look like to excel in the gracious act of giving is he actually pointed them to the generosity of Jesus. Another way to, to say that is Jesus' generosity is a model for our generosity. Jesus, we have to look at His generosity to understand what generosity would look like for us in our lives. Now, I want to read that verse, verse 9, one more time. It says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make you rich. Now, I want to share with you a few things that we learn now. Now that we have some context of what Paul is doing here in these few verses, I want to give you a few things that we learn about 
Jesus' generosity towards us. And the first thing that I would point to is Jesus, He was generous with His grace. That's another way to say that Jesus gave all of who He was. He gave His love and His kindness and His care and His concern and His compassion and His mercy, and He gave His forgiveness. And He gave that freely and unconditionally to all of us. And I love how Paul actually says that in the church. You know, like you know about the generous grace of Jesus that has been given to you. The grace of Jesus is not something that they had just kind of heard about from a distance. The grace of Jesus is something that they actually experienced and encountered up close and personal. And that's the same thing for us. We have encountered and experienced the grace of Jesus, His kindness, His forbearance, His patience, His compassion, His forgiveness towards us. You've experienced it firsthand, the grace of Jesus. And then the second thing Paul wants us to know about Jesus is it says, He was rich. Now, just for clarity's sake, Paul is not actually making a statement about Jesus's bank account. He's not talking about Jesus being financially rich because if you know anything about Jesus in the Gospels, you know that He was homeless. You know that Jesus was not financially well off as it were. Paul didn't have any confusion when he says Jesus was rich. He's making a statement of, I know who Jesus is and Jesus is God. Jesus is God in flesh. In another letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church in Colossae, he said this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. So, when Paul says that Jesus is rich, he is saying Jesus is God. Jesus, in fact, is the owner of all things. Rich, meaning He is rich in power, He is rich in glory, He is rich in honor, He is rich in praise. That's what Paul means to say that Jesus is rich, but we also learn that Jesus did something with the wealth, who He was, for us. It says He became poor. And what Paul has in mind here is the incarnation that God entered into His story, that God entered into His creation. When it says, when Paul says that Jesus became poor, he has in mind that Jesus put aside all things when He stepped out of heaven and He took on flesh and blood and He walked among us. Again, in a different letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a community of people in Philippi, he said this about the incarnation, though He was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Again, Paul does not give us, didn't give the church in Corinth a percent. He didn't say, hey, if you want to excel in the grace of giving, then give this percent. What Paul did do was to point people to the generosity of Jesus. And what happens is when someone sees and knows and encounters and experiences the generosity of Jesus, it actually impacts our poverty. It changes our poverty. Because Paul's message to the church is clear. For those who look to Jesus, 
for those who trust Jesus, for those who are in relationship with Jesus, we become rich. Now, I know when you hear someone say, we become rich, the very first thought that comes to mind is, oh, you're talking about finances, you're talking about wealth. But this is not what Paul is talking about when he says that Jesus became poor. He's actually talking about our poverty, meaning without Jesus, you and I are spiritually poor before God. Without Jesus, we are orphans. Without Jesus, we are actually slaves to sin. Without Jesus, we are, Scripture would say, enemies of God or cut off from God. Without Jesus, we are poor in every way we could actually experience poverty. But because Jesus became poor and stood in our poverty, we receive everything that Jesus has. And what that simply means is if you have Jesus, then you receive His righteousness you receive His purity, you receive His holiness. If you know Jesus, have relationship with Jesus, then you've received the gift of adoption, meaning you get to be considered a son of God. You get to be considered a daughter of God. If you have Jesus or know Jesus, trusted Jesus, well, then guess what? You're a friend of God. You have a close personal relationship with the God of the universe. With Jesus, you and I receive peace with God. And what I mean by that is all of our sins, past, present sins, and even future sins have been completely forgiven by God. If you have Jesus, that means every single day you receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And if you have Jesus, that means you have a new home. That means you have an eternal home in heaven with God forever. What Paul is trying to help us to understand is if you have Jesus, you have everything, or to use Paul's language, you actually are rich. So, in one simple verse, it says so much about Jesus, and it says so much about us. And so, I want us, now that we have a better understanding about this one verse and what it says about Jesus and what it says about us and means for us, now to ask that original question again. What difference does Jesus make at Christmas time? Like, what difference does Jesus make at Christmas time? Because again, if we don't have a meaningful or a thoughtful answer to that question, we'll fall prey to just celebrating another cultural Christmas, ultimately missing Christmas. So, what difference does Jesus make at Christmas time? And my answer to that question would simply be this Jesus is the full demonstration of the generosity of God. Jesus is the full, not in part, but is the full demonstration of the generosity of God. Christmas is to remind us of one thing, and it's to remind us of the generosity of God towards each of us. So, to miss seeing or receiving Jesus at Christmas would actually be to miss completely God's acts of generosity towards you. So, I want to introduce maybe a new question to you. If Christmas is a picture, a demonstration of God's generosity towards you, my question would be this. Do you know of anyone in your life today, whether it's a family, a spouse, a a son or a daughter, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate? Do you know of one person in your life that needs to see or feel, experience or encounter 
the generosity of God this Christmas season? Just one person. Do you know of anyone in your life that needs more in their life than just another cultural Christmas that they actually need to experience and encounter for the very first time the generosity of God? Do you know of one person? I'm guessing there's probably all of us here are thinking of at least one or two, if not more, people in our life that need to experience. And so, I think the question is just, well, how might the people we're all thinking about right now, how would they actually begin to experience the generosity of God this Christmas so that they do not miss Christmas, so they don't just experience another cultural Christmas? How would someone that we're thinking about who needs to experience the generosity, experience the generosity of God. Again, I don't want to oversimplify this, but it's not a complicated question. It's not a complicated answer. And I think the answer is just simply this, generous people, generous people. Those who have encountered and experienced the generosity of God, the people in our lives that we are thinking about needing to, wanting them to experience the generosity of God, will experience the generosity of God through our generosity towards them. So, I just want to finish by sharing with you two ways in which we can all demonstrate the generosity of God in this season. By the way, this isn't just meant to be, hey, we only have to do this one month a year and we're off the hook the other 11 months. This is to say we have the opportunity in this season of time to express and help people encounter God's generosity, not just so they see it in December, but it's so it changes forever who they are, that they would know God as a generous God. And as these two ways that I'll show you, I want you to see that they are so intricately connected to how you and I have experienced the generosity of God towards us. And number one would just simply be this, be generous with your grace. Be generous with your grace. In a world that seems to excel, in like holding grudges against people, in a world that seems to excel in terms of people who are just keeping a record of wrongs, of like people who have hurt us, wronged us, or maybe sinned against us, in a world that just seems to thrive on people having hearts that are just filled with either bitterness or anger towards those who have wronged us, sinned against us, hurt us, it would seem that what people need more than anything is someone who would be willing to be gracious towards them. When I think about grace, what I'm talking about is not giving people what we think they deserve, a piece of my mind or reminding them afresh of how they've hurt me, let me down, disappointed me, or even sinned against me. What people actually need is to experience forgiveness or kindness or compassion in the same way that God has done that for me time and time and time again. People in my life will experience the generosity of God, will experience the grace of God when I make the decision to be gracious to those that have hurt, those that have wronged, those that have even sinned against me. And so I would just ask, is there one person in your life, like in this season of time, family, friend, neighbor, coworker, someone who's hurt, disappointed, even sinned against you, that what they need more than anything is you to be gracious towards them, and in so doing, you're helping them to encounter the grace of God or the generosity of God. 
The second way that we can help people experience the generosity of God is be generous with your everything. And I know this is a ginormous junk drawer category, but be generous with your everything. Remember how Paul said, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Because I've been thinking about that verse over these past few weeks. The thing that just humbles me to the core is this idea that the one who had everything, he laid everything down so that the ones who had nothing could have everything. The one who had absolutely everything, he laid that down so that the ones who had absolutely nothing could become men and women who have everything. So, the question I've just been asking myself this past week specifically is this, how am I using my everything to help everyone meet Jesus? How am I using the everything in my life to help anyone, everyone in my life just come to meet Jesus and see the generosity of God? I know this question kind of flies in the face of the messaging that is marketed to us every single day, especially in this days leading up to Christmas. I know the marketing, the messaging that we hear again and again and again is spend everything on anything you want first. Like that's the message we get. That's what the marketers wanted us to hear and to feel is spend everything on anything you want first. Like case in point, it's Black Friday first, followed by Cyber Monday, and then after you've spent everything on anything that you want first, if there happens to be anything left over, then there's Giving Tuesday, almost as an afterthought. Now, it might seem like a silly example, but the reality is that when our culture spent, and this is the numbers from this past Black Friday and Cyber Monday, $16.6 billion in the span of a weekend, from uh, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, to Cyber Monday. And then on Giving Tuesday, people gave 3.2% of what was actually spent on Giving Tuesday. And 3.2% is a little over $500 million. Now, I don't know if that sounds good or encouraging or impressive to you that people gave 3% on Giving Tuesday, But it would just seem to me that we're a culture that says spend anything on everything you want first. But the beauty of the gospel message is that Jesus has actually demonstrated a much, much better way for us to live. Because the heart of the gospel message, the heart of the Christmas message is God gave everything, meaning Himself first, so that those who had nothing could experience God, could have everything in God in relationship with Him. So, let me ask again the same question, how am I using my everything to help everyone meet Jesus? And for me, I think about this in just three ways. How am I using my time? How am I using any talent that God's given? And how am I using my treasure? How am I using time, talent, and treasure to help anyone and everyone in my life get a little bit closer to seeing and experience Jesus, the generosity of God? If God would use me spending time, whether it's just taking someone out for coffee, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, if God would use me spending my time just to encourage someone, to pray with someone, to bless them, 
or if God would use any talent that I have just that I could serve somebody, whether it's just serving someone on a Sunday morning when they walk through these doors, or serving someone in school or in the workplace Monday through Saturday. If God could use any talent that I have, and that talent is being used to serve other people, or if God could use any treasure, meaning any financial resource that I have to give to support the local church or to support an organization that cares deeply about helping people meet Jesus. If God would use any of those things, time, talent, or treasure, to help one person take a step closer to Jesus, how could I not possibly give? The model of our generosity is Jesus and how Jesus gave everything first so that those who had nothing could actually experience everything in God. Do not miss the generosity of God this Christmas season. The difference that Jesus makes at Christmas is that He is the full demonstration of the generosity of God towards us. And please do not miss the opportunity that we have in the next 15 days leading up to Christmas morning to be generous with our grace and generous towards those in our lives with just everything first, time, talent, and treasure, so that the stories we celebrate this Christmas are the men and women who are getting to experience afresh for the very first time the generosity of God is seen in Jesus.